0: Hello and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer.
1: And I'm Jim Elliott.
0: And today we're joined by Barry Edelstein. Hello, Barry. Hi, gentlemen. How are you? Great. It's so good to have you here. Great to be here with you. Uh, Barry Edelstein is a stage director, producer, author, and educator who is widely recognized as one of the leading American authorities in the works of Shakespeare. Barry has directed nearly half of the Bard's plays. Since 2012, he's been serving as the artistic director of the Old Globe Theater in San Diego, where his directing credits include The Winter's Tale, Othello, and many more. He also directed All's Well That Ends Well as the inaugural production of Globe for All, a new producing platform that tours the works of Shakespeare to diverse communities throughout San Diego County. His lengthy creative resume includes director of the Shakespeare Initiative at the New York Public Theater from 2008 to 2012, and New York's classic stage company from 1998 to 2003. He's worked with a who's who of notable actors, including Al Pacino, Gwyneth Paltrow, John Turturro, Uma Thurman, and many others. Barry has taught Shakespearean acting at the Juilliard School, NYU's graduate acting program, and the University of Southern California. And his book, Thinking Shakespeare, is the standard text on American Shakespearean acting. He is also the author of Bardisms, Shakespeare for all occasions.
2: So, welcome, Barry. Thank you very much. Oh man, it's agonizing to listen to all that. You know, it's like hearing, you guys know, it's like listening to your own voice when recorded. You know, there's something something horrifying about going through all of
0: that, as proud as I am. Just yeah. stuff to listen to sometime. And yeah, we were talking to someone, I can't remember who, who said that, you know, they didn't really have a career. They just had a bunch of stuff they did.
2: <laughs> that's good. I like it. No, it's a career, you know, and I, I tell my students the verb to career means to bang around aimlessly, you know, the drunken driver careered down the highway. Right. And that's, that's, that's what I feel like, you know, I did a little of this, a little of that. Shakespeare's been in the middle of it, though. That's, yeah, that's one thing. A lot of Shakespeare in there.
0: So speaking of careering around, here we are in 2021 and we're all careering around. How is 2021 treating you and in the world of Shakespeare from your perspective? Oh, my God. You know, we thought uh, 2020, when, 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 when 2020
2: went away on December 31st, we all thought we could breathe a sigh of relief. And then 2021 just took us deeper into the soup, you know. It's been a really, really tough time. I'll be honest with you. The impact on the field of American institutional theater has been profound and is going to take a long time to recover from at the old globe. We've experienced a $15 million reduction in revenue Mm -hmm. since the closure in the middle of March. And um, that's like half of the institution just gone now This means people out of work, uh, 150-something of our staff on the unemployment rolls, Mm. freelance artists, writers, actors, designers who don't have work. It's it's a grim, grim picture. Now, there's been some good news. Um, Number one, we've pivoted to all kinds of digital work, just as you guys are wonderfully doing. And, you know, we're we're, we're putting material up on every kind of virtual platform imaginable. And this has been really interesting in terms of the reach that it's had. You know, um, the radio and the internet get to exponentially more people than the live stage does which is a basically local and finite form. So there's that good news. Interesting. There's the philanthropic community in San Diego, which has just been astonishing in an absence of earned revenue. Contributed revenue has become extremely important. And the the folks who support the arts in this amazing city have dug deep and they've done very innovative and interesting things. That's been wonderful. And then the third part is the social justice revolution that's taking place in every sector of American society, and in particular in the arts. And the globe's been deeply involved in that. So there's a lot to be optimistic about. It just feels like that's very weighed down by a certain kind of darkness that we all hope will lift soon. So that's the report. I'm an optimist by nature.
1: And I feel that there's going to be a creative explosion once this is all over, Uh, much like Shakespeare after the plague came up with some amazing shows, amazing plays. So that's, that's my optimistic hope, but that doesn't take away what's happened over the past 10
2: months. You know, I share that optimism. I really do. And and I think there is going to be just like Shakespeare showed, there's going to be a kind of roaring return of people to the theater. I just hope that we don't forget the pain that we've experienced because it's a unique opportunity to learn from, you know we we experienced the pain that we did because there were vulnerabilities there that we weren't paying attention to. You know, there were vulnerabilities there in terms of how artists are paid and valued in our society. And so when it shut down, they were left uniquely vulnerable. There were issues in terms of how healthcare is provided to the people who work in this sector. And so when the pandemic hit our sector was uniquely vulnerable and of course there there was uh, you know real questions of of racial equity and and of of systemic biases that we weren't paying attention to and now we are. So I hope that when the lights turn back on we celebrate we dance, we sing, we hold hands. I hope all of that happens, but I hope we don't forget the hard lessons that we've learned.
0: So can I ask you frankly where where you think we are and situated? Right now we're recording this in very early 2021. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. The vaccines have been approved and are very slowly being rolled out. It feels like one today. You are. Wow. All right, Jim. That's great. Well, depending on where you are in the country, this is kind of an uneven process. And I think for most people, it feels like an interminable sort of purgatory situation where, although there's hope, hope, there's no telling how long it will take for us to return to any sense of normalcy if there is any such thing anymore. So Mm -hmm. my question for you is, do you feel like you are still in this space of crisis management or maybe even bracing for worse things to come? Or are you able at this point to begin to chart a course forward over the next year or two or three or five years? We feel
2: that it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I do feel that that's, that's where we are because The country lost so much time getting ready to roll these vaccines out because there's so much disinformation, because there's so much disunity. But then I do see the vaccine starting to roll out and people starting to feel confident to come out again. I look at places like Australia, New Zealand, South Korea where they've beat this thing, and restaurants are jammed, and concert halls are packed, and theaters are getting full, so I do believe that that's going to happen, but I, I we're not we're not quite there yet and and a couple of things that I think we really have to keep in mind you know we at the globe we're in touch with public health authorities in San Diego County very regularly, and they've they're just They've got other stuff that they're thinking about. So we call them up and we say, "What are the rules going to be for theater?" You know, and it's like, "Hey, scram!" You know, um, and I can't even be upset about that because I'm a citizen and I want to know that people are going to have a hospital bed to go to if God forbid they get sick. So this, this is this is what I mean about not forgetting. The darkness and the pain that we've been through. And you know, I I have been talking about this in terms of Shakespeare, because to me, the great expressions of Shakespeare are the four late plays: The Tempest, Cymbeline, Pericles, and the Winter's Tale. These are to me the the, the summit of Shakespeare's achievement. And what what those four plays do is they manage to combine loss with renewal. They managed to find a happy ending in the way that the comedies do, but not by banishing the blocking figure or the enemy in the way that the comedies do, right? The end of Much Ado About Nothing, the bad guy's out of town. The end of As You Like It, the bad guy's in his cave, right? The end of uh, Twelfth Night, Malvolio goes stalking out and that's it. And now we're safe and we can have our wedding again. But the end of the four late plays, the bad stuff is still in the room, and yet we figure out a way to be happy, right? Leontes gets his wife back after 16 years, and they have their reunion, but their dead son does not come back to life. Dead Antigonus, who's been torn apart by a bear, does not come back to life. And so there's this dual consciousness of being able to move forward and being able to celebrate that we've survived a calamity and being able to enjoy the grace of God or whatever higher power you want to call it, that's given us a second chance. And yet the loss is still there. And I think the theater field is going to have to figure that part out. In all the ways that we've been talking about Shakespeare's ability to survive the plague, all rightly, uh, that's the part that most appeals to me. I hope that we can embrace that wisdom that Shakespeare gained in those four late plays and say, yeah, we're going to rebuild. Yes, we're going to celebrate. Yeah, we're going to have a big dinner together and talk about what just happened. But also, we're going to remember, by that point, 500,000 dead Americans, you know? By that point, uh, you know, uh, the consciousness of a legacy of racial exclusion that's just embarrassing to our field. You know, we've got to find a way to carry that forward with us as we turn the lights back on. Mm.
0: Well, that's so beautifully put. Thank yeah. you, Barry. Lovely. I know that you've, you've responded in a number of proactive ways to these particular challenges, some of the, in some of the ways that you indicated, for example, the, the Thinking Shakespeare, the sonnet series, which is available for all to view, And then uh, also you've got an interesting production of Hamlet coming up. Do you want to speak to that?
2: Yeah, well, you know, the, the, the pandemic happened in so many different chapters, you know, at the beginning of it, we were all saying, oh, we'll be closed for two weeks, and then we'll reopen, you know, and then suddenly it was, oh, it's going to be two months. And then, you know, oh, my God, just one uh, worsening development after another. And uh, in my life, when bad things happen, I read Shakespeare, when good things happen, I read Shakespeare. And uh, when the when the pandemic hit, I was thinking about the sonnets and the there's a lot of these poems about being isolated and being being separated by great distances but and yet our ability to think our way into a connection is miraculous and beautiful also they're short you know they're only 14 lines and i thought well i can reach out to the community at the old globe and try and forge some kind of connection by maybe doing something with these wonderful poems and i had no idea what it would turn into, I you know I turned my house into a video studio, and then we turned the old globe into a new media company and did all these experiments, not just my Shakespeare thing, but our arts engagement work is is now going to prisons up and down the state of California on the prison closed circuit television network mm. who even knew they had such a thing. Normally we send teaching artists into state correctional facilities around San Diego County, two or three of them. And, you know, they drive out, there's one out in the desert, two hours from here. And it, teaching artist drives out, goes into the prison, spends time with 10 inmates, teaches a Shakespeare lesson, comes home. But now we're making these recorded episodes that are going all around the state of California, these, these extraordinary transformations. Hmm. So yeah, I did that sonnet thing. And suddenly I'm getting emails from people in England and New Zealand and people in every state in the country. And reckoning with the fact that the theater now suddenly has this kind of reach is a really, really interesting thing. Because normally, if you want to participate at the Old Globe, you buy a ticket, you show up in Balboa Park at 8 p.m., you sit in H-101, and that's the experience. That's all done now. now. Now it's... I can... Watch Barry's sonnet thing at any time, anywhere and enjoy a connection to the art of theater. So we're all reckoning with that. That's what led us to the Hamlet thing. We we went to our friends at KPBS, which is the local NPR affiliate here in San Diego and said, you know, we've got this production of Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. It's the annual holiday show at the Globe. It's very important to our business model, but it's also been going for 23 years. And it's a big part of holiday season in San Diego is taking your family to go see the Grinch at the Old Globe. And so we thought, what are we going to do with this thing? Are we going to do a Zoom version of it? Are we going to get into a studio and film it somehow? And we went and talked to the radio station and they said, great, let's do it, but let's do more than one thing. And I said, okay, well, I did this Hamlet back in twenty seventeen. What about that? So we're we're gonna work on that. It, it it it's like looking at the idea of theater and putting it in a kaleidoscope and suddenly seeing all these different angles on it that you never imagined before. And it's been fun.
1: It is certainly challenging. And and the question that I always have when, you know, we're teaching, we both teach, and teaching acting through Zoom is a challenge, but You know, as an audience member, if I'm going to see theater, I'm experiencing a live event. What's the gain of seeing a live theatrical performance versus a film?
2: Well, they're obviously, you know, as you guys know, completely different things. And I don't, I would never argue for an instant that these digital forms are substitutes. You know, they're they're not, they're placeholders. I think what we're going to find is that there are artists who have figured out these media and are doing extraordinary things there, you know, and really what we're watching is the birth of a new form, which is this sort of hybrid digital theatrical art form, which I completely embrace. I just don't describe it as theater, it's something else. It's a quasi-theatrical form. And some of it is fantastic and some of it is boring, but sometimes live theater is boring and live theater <laughs> can be fantastic, you know? So it's a real, it's a real range of, uh, of stuff. It does not capture the same essence of actually being in the room with other people. And, and the reason is that, that magic superpower of theater, of community, That's the thing that's the thing that makes theater what it is, which is it gathers people together in one space and makes them one unit for this period of time. Mm -hmm. I'm no sociologist and I'm no anthropologist, but I have to believe that a lot of the fracturing that we're seeing so violently around the country is because people aren't gathering together. And I don't just mean in theaters. I mean with families you know you know at the store we we are we are we are essentially social beings and this virus has made us isolate from each other and the only forum we have to gather on is social media and it's not the same so there's all this weird breakdown happening because the bonds of i don't know what you want to call it comity polity i don't know some fancy word that make individuals into a community have been sundered by this vaccine. So that's the theater's thing. You bring 600 people together in the middle of Balboa Park, and you're sitting next to somebody who voted for the candidate that you loathe, but here you are together watching this thing, watching this story. Loathing Polio, <laughs> Right. Yes. Right. That somehow transcends the differences and temporarily makes you, you know, and I, I, I'm not, I I want to be clear about this. I want to not make claims that are absurd. I don't believe that if those guys that stormed the Capitol had been subscribers to their local theater, they would have behaved differently. You know, I don't, I don't think that you can solve all of social society's problems by throwing theater at it, but you can help a little, you know, you really can help a little. My, one of the first giant mentor figures that I had in my life was Joseph Papp. And he genuinely believed that there was no problem in human society that couldn't be made a little bit better by having some Shakespeare thrown at it, you know? And it was on the one hand, this very naive, old school liberal idea, you know, sort of 1930s liberal idea. On the other hand, there's something deeply beautiful in it because it was small in scale I might change one person's mind just a little bit about one thing and it cumulatively starts to build. So, so it's that, it's this sense of the, the, the theater's power of bringing strangers together and making them a collective and the theater's power of asking people together to have a shared experience that, that will be why people come back. And that is the thing that these digital experiments struggle with the most.
0: I feel like there was an awful lot of the theatrical in what we witnessed. Was it only last week? You know, when I saw the pictures of of the rioters storming the Capitol and documenting what they were doing on social media in real time and wearing absurd costumes, it felt to me like what they were doing was engaging in some sort of cosplay, but with real weapons and real world implications and consequences that they probably in the... In the moment, had no awareness of.
2: Well, you know, here, uh, I don't mean to be glib, but uh, they could use a better costume designer. You know? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think they need to call up United Scenic Artists, and take right. a look yeah. at their costume design. Under, uh, yeah, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I, uh, the, the the storming of the Capitol is is the riot. In Julius Caesar, after the funeral orations, you know, and so I just went, and you know, you see the, tear down benches, tear down, you know, and you read this language in there of and 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 of Shakespeare describing what the riot is like, and it, you look at the film the video of what's going on there in Washington, and it's the same. It's the same stuff. And it's kind of grim that, wow, 400 years later and it's the same thing. I suppose you could look at that and say, you see, Shakespeare was brilliant and prescient. On the other hand, you look at it and go, oh man, we haven't really moved ahead much. <laughs> we haven't learned a lot all. <laughs> we really haven't, we really haven't <laughs> learned. I don't know. I, I, you know, that thing was so traumatic to witness it's going to take a long, long, long time for all of us to metabolize what that experience was. I think that when an, when an eruption of violence like that happens, you know, I was in New York City on September 11th, 2001, and it's a generation later, and New York is still reacting to that, or as is the rest of the United States, still reacting to that. And I think this is going to be one of those moments. And again, I I think what the theater can do to respond to that is on a very granular kind of basis. I, I don't, I don't, as I've devoted my life to this art form and I adore it and I believe in it as the greatest and most efficacious thing in the world. But I don't think that the theater has the power to change an entire society instantly. What it can do is touch individual people. You know, we can, we can at, on the stage of the Old Globe, we can model an America that we want to live in and an audience can see it and see that it's beautiful. And the needle gets moved just a tiny bit.
1: I couldn't agree more. And to your point earlier about community, I think that the theater, just one of the things is it lives in questions. And, you know, as an audience member, you walk out of a play, whether it's Shakespeare or any other play, And there are questions, and it foments discussion. And that's something that social media does not foment. foments echo chambers. But, I mean, I'll never forget, after a a production of Oleana, a wife turning to a husband and saying, well, she was awful. And the husband turning to the wife and saying, I don't know, I think he was pretty bad. Hmm. And right there, the discussion begins. Right. And you can't ignore it. You can't just go to your own little echo chamber and talk about it. So... I think that's that's the power of theater, and certainly, through the ages, people have known about the power of theater. Uh, most famously, Oliver Cromwell, shortly mm-hmm. after Shakespeare's death, shut it down because theater can be dangerous. Yeah, um, but. Moving on to sh- a little bit more Shakespeare, Barry, not to go deep dive into your past, but how did, how did you develop that love and knowledge of Shakespeare that you know has been with you for all of this time
2: wow uh, that's a great question and and um you know there are a couple pieces to it because i've i've thought about it because I have young children I have an eight year old son and a thirteen year old daughter and i I'm watching as they find the things that they love in their life, and it's interesting to see how it happens sort of osmosis and they, they they randomly bump into things, some of which resonate with them and some of them don't. Um, I had great teachers, that's number one. I, I was in a public school system in Northern New Jersey where there was robust arts activity. Subsequent budget cuts have reduced the scale of that, sadly. But the proximity of the community I grew up in to New York City meant that the teachers were... people who had working artistic lives in New York and their day job was teaching public school out in the suburbs. So there was really good theater programming in the public school system of Fairlawn, New Jersey and Bergen County. And um, and so I was exposed to a lot of theater. Plus my folks were cultured and would take the family into New York City to see theater. It, w- it was Broadway and it was Broadway musicals or celebrity shows. You know, I didn't discover off Broadway till I was you know an adult. I didn't discover the art theater of, you know, La Mama and the Open Theater and Mabu Mines and those companies until I was college aged but I was around theater as a kid and had good Shakespeare teachers too. So I would read this stuff and try and figure it out. And then there was like a light bulb moment. I was in a production of a Midsummer Night's Dream in high school and the language just spoke to me and the language resonated with me in a way that seemed to go somewhere beyond the normal, beyond just regular language. It seemed to have uh, spiritual resonance in my life. And, you know, I've spoken with friends a lot about this. These are canonical texts that are very old and that encode universal, ethical, moral kind of values. There's something, I don't know, spiritual about them. Something, yeah, many people treat them as religious texts, you know, and I, I don't necessarily, but I do recognize that they have the same effect on me as spiritual literature does. So that was it. That, that was it. I was a goner at that point. Mm. And then I just sort of, you know, dove into it through college, where again I ran into great teachers. I I, I never knew what theater directing even was as a, as a kid. And I had teachers I went to Tufts University where wonderful teachers looked at me and said, I see in you the spark of somebody who might want to think about directing, you know, such a gift to have a teacher who sees something in you that you don't even know is there and says here's something that you might want to pursue. So I did started directing when I was an undergrad and then that was it. There was no, there was no turning back. The next step in my life was in graduate school. And I, and I went to Oxford immersed myself in Shakespeare, you know, in, Oxfordshire and driving to Warwickshire to go to the Royal Shakespeare Company every weekend, going to London to see theater was just a stunning, stunning period of time in my life. And, and that kind of sealed the deal. And, um, and it's been all Shakespeare all the time, plus some other stuff, other theater stuff too, but Shakespeare has been the spine of my life experience and my, and my, my spiritual existence and my, and my soulful existence ever since.
1: I love the idea of the spiritual nature uh, of the text. I think I think that's what keeps me going too. I
2: yeah, think. we all have an appetite to connect with something larger than ourselves. I, I I shouldn't say we all do. My own experience is that I yearn for a connection to something that is larger than myself. I'm I'm Jewish, and I'm you know not terribly observant, but I but I belong to a synagogue. I go. I I you know I. I mark the rituals every year. I, you know, it it helped me very much when my father passed away. So I do understand that sense of connecting via text because that's what it is, right? The people of the book, you know, it's connecting to that larger thing via text. And Shakespeare is a very clear equivalent to that. I can read a passage of Shakespeare and feel like I have touched a current that is emanating from something larger somewhere.
0: The piece that you selected to share with us today is from Hamlet, it's from Hamlet, act two, scene two. Very famous speech. Of all of the speeches that you could have chosen, why did you choose this one for this moment?
2: Oh my God. I mean, you know, it's like going to an all you can eat banquet in Las Vegas and going, I'll have the cheeseburger, you know, I mean, there's, there's, I don't know. I wasn't in a sushi mood. So I, I, you know, um, uh, honestly the the question I'm sure you guys get this all the time. What's your favorite Shakespeare play? The answer is the one I'm working on at the moment. So I'm in Hamlet right now as we prepare this thing, for the radio. The the what a piece of work uh, is a man speech is I think one of the like um, dark horses of Hamlet. You know, people think about to be or not to be and people think about speak the speech I pray you as I pronounced it to you. People don't necessarily, or alas poor Yorick, right? What a piece of work uh, is a man is to me kind of underrated, A wonderful, beautiful speech. But it also goes to the things that we've been talking about. Um, and I think about this moment that people, human beings are so glorious. And human beings are capable of such extraordinary things. And yet they're also capable of painting their face and putting a Viking hat on and defecating in the U.S. Capitol, you know, like the the, the, so the weird dichotomy of the beauty of man, the paragon of animals, and yet the miserable disappointment of how awful people can be just was in the air on my mind.
1: I agree with you. It is. It is a beautiful and a very spiritual piece of text, but it's also in prose, mm-hmm. which is always interesting to me. And it, to me, it is, has always linked very strongly with another beautiful piece of prose text that Hamlet speaks later in the play, The Readiness Is All. Mm-hmm. Because I think that the, the, there's, the, there's a spiritual nature to that as well. And I think you wouldn't get to the providence speech without
2: this speech. That's right. There's a divinity that shapes our ends. Yeah. Rough hew them how we will. Yeah. yeah. There is this sense of uh, Hamlet trying to figure out the role of providence in, in his life, the special providence, right, in, in his life. And this gets to that. This gets to that. That that on the other hand, you know what I do like about it is that it is it's it's humanistic. It's about it's about man. It's about man and the choices that that we make. That we've been given this gift of free will, and what we choose to do with it is up to us. And will we make a mess or won't we? Yeah, the prose question is so interesting. Why Hamlet says all the mate the amazing things that he does in this highly wrought verse, and then suddenly he comes out with these chunks that are formless, equally beautiful in prose. People always say, well, is there a rule? You know, is it this? Yeah. If it's, if it's a month without an R in it, it's prose, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) if if it's, you know, I, I don't know. Certain things somehow in Shakespeare's imagination require a kind of discipline of form that, move them into verse and others seem to overspill the boundaries of that 10 beat line and take on a different kind of expression although we have to remember when you when you go into the period printing of these plays the guys in the publishing houses would run out of space on a page and would set up you know 50 lines of verse as the 30 lines of prose because they were coming to the end of a page. So, you know, yeah. let the buyer beware that sometimes this stuff is, a, is an accident of the technology of printing in the 16th and 17th century mm-hmm. and not necessarily something that's intentional. Okay. So this is uh, act two scene two of Hamlet and I'm cutting it off before Rosencrantz makes a joke because yeah. that's the, the next part of it. Okay. I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, forgone all custom of exercises, and indeed it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, the earth, seems to me a sterile promontory, this most excellent canopy, the air. Look you, this brave or hanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire, Why, it appeareth nothing to me but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. What a piece of work is a man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me. Isn't that amazing? Oh my God, what is this quintessence of dust? the guy you know you think about you think about this guy alone in his garret with his quill pen and his ink and his paper and you 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 just have to ask yourself like what bolt of lightning was he touching with his hand that brought this expression through him it's it's stunning it's spectacular and for all the politics and for all the for all the theory that has accreted around him over centuries, really it's just beauty. It's, it's beauty. That's, that's what draws me to it again and again. That's why people watch Hamlet 10 times over the course of their life. That's why they buy a hundred dollar ticket and sit there for three hours to watch it because there is just a simple magnificent beauty in this language that we want to be near.
0: Couldn't agree more. When I hear you read this, I'm struck at how many different levels it resonates with. You can imagine, as you say, Shakespeare with his his hand, you know, touching the lightning in the bottle Mm -hmm. as these words come to him, these profound words about the human condition. And at the same time, you can picture Hamlet, the character, you know, with his audience of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and maybe being free to speak truth because he's dissembling as well you yeah. know and in that moment there's that dichotomy of him playing playing mad and then speaking these profound truths at the same time and then thinking about the actor playing hamlet in this wooden o on this stage surrounded by stinking vapors issuing from the groundlings and, and, uh, you know, yeah. that, that present that present communion that was happening between the actor and the audience at that time, that electric, you know, dichotomy of the actor playing the character, but also directly addressing the audience and taunting them and having, having perhaps some fun with that. And uh, it, it just it, on so, so many beautiful levels. I know
2: it's so great, you know, and you imagine what would it have been like to hear that for the first time, mm. you know, to just stand there and hear a guy say that, and 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 we we see it, you know. I mean, the famous Herman Melville thing about Shakespeare's being born on the banks of Ohio at this very moment, you know. <laughs> there there are there are writers who are doing this, you know, and we go to the theater and we see a new play and we'll hear a turn of phrase that just makes us gasp, with with you know stunned disbelief at some, some, the fact that a human being can express words in that order. It's, it's special. It's interesting that you say that, you know, um, I I directed the play recently, uh, well, a couple of years ago, and we thought we tried, well, he's playing mad. He doesn't mean any of this. We couldn't make that work. We couldn't make that work. And I think about all the productions of Hamlet that I've seen, and this speech always feels like a sudden revelation of truth, you know, that he doesn't—he doesn't do it as a manipulation of Rosenkrantz and Gildenstern. Somehow, at this moment, his essential self opens up, and this terrible black vision of melancholy and depression comes out of him in an in an authentic way. I'd be really interested to see if somebody could figure out how to make it something other than that. To me, it just feels like such a deeply personal expression of where he's at. My my favorite thing about it, actually, is but wherefore I know not. I don't know why. And you know the first line of The Merchant of Venice, in sooth, I know not why I am so sad, right? This this thing, Stephen Greenblatt famously talks about Hamlet that that what Shakespeare's extraordinary leap in Hamlet is removing motivation from it because the source material that he had the 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 old Hamlet play and the and the novel the novella from you know the Scandinavia that that he had read everything's really motivated and you follow, hey, you know exactly why Hamlet does this and why Hamlet does that. And Shakespeare stripped all that stuff out. And so that's why the play is so mysterious to us. And Hamlet even talks about, asked Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, do you think you can pluck the heart of my mystery? You know, he's, he constantly brings in to the discussion, the fact that his motives are unclear and he himself doesn't even know why he's feeling the way he feels. So that thing I I have of late, but wherefore I know not lost all my mirth. I don't know why I'm so, I don't know why I feel so weird. It's so modern. It feels so like right now, you know, I, I don't know why I even feel this way. And that's superb and spectacular about it, you know? And it's why I think one of the reasons why we turn to it again and again and again, because we think maybe this time we'll figure him out. This time we'll actually figure out what's going on with this guy. Nope, I never do. No. I
1: also think that that speaks so much to instinct. And then if you want to bring it down to whether it's an actor or a director, you know, trusting your instinct. And, you know, I don't know why I made this choice. Mm. And being able to live in that place in that question. And and I know that in, in this Particular moment with Hamlet, he's melancholy, but I'm looking for that spark, and then it comes, and I don't know how, where that comes from, and that's right. such a
2: human moment. It's also what's what's really wonderful about it, and you know, this goes this goes Garrett to your earlier point, which is that, see, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, they think there are answers to questions. They're two folks who think there's an explanation that that's why they're here. The king and the queen summoned them and said, "Go find out what's eating." Our son, you've known him since you were in college together. Go find out what's bothering him. And so they think there actually is an answer. And what Hamlet knows is there are certain things in life to which there are no answers, you know? And the wonderful drama of the exchanges between Hamlet and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is that you're seeing these two worldviews, which is this kind of concrete sense, empirical sense of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern thinking there must be an explanation. And Hamlet's more ineffable sense of going nope there is no explanation we just have to live in that we have to live in the fact that we cannot know and that's so great
0: that the two of them clash against each other in that way I love that explanation I think it's I think it's very beautiful is there a world in which Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are anticipating the next thing to come out of Hamlet's mouth to be I think my uncle killed my father hmm
2: I don't know. See, here's one of the fun things that I enjoyed about the play that I never knew. Uh, As as much as I know this play and as long as I've studied this play, when I directed it, I found something out, which is that Claudius never finds out how Hamlet figured it out. Never finds out. Claudius goes to his death knowing that Hamlet figured out that he killed his brother not knowing how. Why? Because Claudius couldn't imagine that a ghost showed up, right? Because how does Hamlet know? Hamlet knows because his father's ghost came and told him. It was a perfect crime. Old Hamlet was asleep in his orchard, right? Claudius snuck in, poured the poison in his ear and then said, well, a snake killed him. He was bitten by a poisonous snake. And uh, okay, how would Hamlet know what really happened? Right. There is no earthly explanation. And w- w- the, the wonderful actor, Cornell Womack, who played Claudius in the production that we did, we talked about this a lot is then, and as he's dying, he's looking at Hamlet going, how, what, how died, can't know, can't <laughs> oh. know, right? So there, there are, Hamlet can embrace the fact. And of course we've seen productions where the ghost is a figment of Hamlet's imagination right? That's a typical thing where actually that isn't what happened is that, that, that Hamlet surmises somehow what Claudius did and pursues it. We didn't go that way. We went that the ghost is actually real and gave him. Cam- and, and, and it was a really fun thing because then the whole fight between Hamlet and Claudius takes on this kind of other dimension of Claudius knowing there's something about this guy. This guy figured this out. How did he figure it out? Is he Sherlock Holmes? What? There, there, there's no way he could possibly know. And yet Hamlet knows. I love that about it, right? And this is the wonderful thing about being a director is that you learn things about these plays that you could never have figured out without. I remember this really specifically. Grantham Coleman played Hamlet and, and Cornell Womack, Claudius and I and we're sitting there talking one day and going, hey, wait a minute. Does Claudius ever know that the ghost came and talked to Hamlet? No, he doesn't. He doesn't know this. So Claudius has to die completely unaware of how Hamlet managed to figure it out. So great.
1: Yeah. And again, that's, here, here we are back at this speech. Not only does Hamlet not know why he's lost all his mirth, but, but Claudius is trying to figure
2: out how does Hamlet know this? I don't know. This. Yeah. yeah. How do we know the things we know? Right. right? living in the questions. How do we know the things we know? Right. I, we don't. We can't. We, no. we sit in the uncertainty of it. It drives some of us mad, you know, and others, uh, others it doesn't. Horatio knows, Horatio knows that, that there's a ghost of Hamlet's father running around and he's got the whole thing. And yeah. so that's why Hamlet says to him, you got to tell the story, yeah. right? You've got to tell the story. And so you get the other version of the production where Fortinbras comes in at the end and murders Horatio so that he never gets the chance to tell the story, right? People do all sorts of, it's it's just wonderful. The play is endlessly, endlessly fascinating, you know? And one of these, and I, I get to do it again on radio and ooh, the, the production that we did at the Globe, although I cut it heavily, it was still three hours. Um, On KPBS, we're not going to have three hours of time. So I've cut it more. And there again, it just, it becomes a different kind of play that I've cut in, in the production we did live, we kept the Fortinbras story, but to you know that's that's a good 15 minutes of the play if you cut that out so i just cut it out no fortin brass and it's a completely different play becomes a domestic tragedy without a political dimension without a kind of international intrigue dimension so i'm really excited to to go back into it and and do it again it'll be it'll be on the radio in we're we're trying to get it out right around shakespeare's birthday of april 23rd so and i start Thursday, starting a couple days, taping oh, this thing. That's got to be exciting.
1: Room. Yeah. We will definitely put a link into this production in our, on our website. Thank you. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I imagine that one of the critical things about doing a Hamlet on radio is the
2: soundscape. Absolutely. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about that. So Curtis Moore wrote a, wrote a score, a musical score for the production that we did live. And everything that we needed, sound effects, a gun, sh- a cannon shot, whatever, was all created musically. So we're going we're gonna to keep uh, that. And Lindsay Jones, the sound designer, has been doing a lot of radio drama in the pandemic. It's a very interesting thing that's happened is a lot of theatrical sound designers have moved over to these digital forms. And and when we decided to do this Radio Hamlet, I said, wow, I need somebody who knows what a radio drama is, you know? I'm sure there are some, the the BBC, they do it all the time, you know, to this very day, they're making hours and hours and hours every month of radio drama. But in the United States, it went the way of the dinosaur a long time ago. And so we've been talking a lot about what we want it to sound like. There's also the problem of storytelling you know uh in the sword fight for example there's this moment where hamlet has to discover that laertes blade is sharpened at the point right unbated uh is that what it is yeah sword unbated um, it's supposed to be blunted at the end for safety if you're doing just a, a you know an exposition match right then he discovered and so there's this piece of business that happens where hamlet picks up laertes sword discovers that it's sharpened then picks, then he keeps that sword and gives his own sword back to Laertes. And there's no language in Shakespeare's play about it. They don't say, I see that this blade is pointy here. I'm going to keep yours. You take mine, right? right. You don't need to because on stage the audience sees all that happen. Well, so we're going, well, how do you do that on the radio? Interestingly, I I found this Orson Welles radio hamlet from the 1930s and you hear some guy go Look, they change rapiers, you know, because he's going. <laughs> How am I going to make the audience understand that they switched swords, right? And so there's some like extra that they brought in oh for the God, day, for that, right? So these are absolutely. What do you want it to sound like, you know? What ear do you do? We had, you know, an eerie soundscape when the ghost showed up, and it was all created musically. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're we're talking about that also. How do you use the microphone? Right. We're, I don't know. We're going to start rehearsal in a couple of days and you think, well, maybe Hamlet's soliloquy should be like to be or not to be. Yes. That is the question, you know, and really exploit the radio medium to sort of bring it intimately into the audience's well, ears. I, I don't know. I it's like a new world. Yeah. That's very exciting. I mean, that that's a fun exploration. Yeah. I'm really, really looking forward to it. And, and again, you know, we started out talking about the pandemic, you know, silver linings, right? right? Suddenly I'm exploring a brand new form. Maybe we'll keep doing radio drama. Maybe there will be a new vein of radio drama happening in the American theater as a result of this thing. That would be great.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And also how that informs your work on stage when you get back to the live theater. Totally. Absolutely true. So we, we have to wrap up real quick, but I have one last question that I'm uh, uh, we have to ask you. Sure. Since you have been on the forefront of both Shakespeare production and Shakespeare education for so many years. What would be your piece of advice for a young up and coming Shakespearean actor?
2: Oh my goodness! Uh, you know um, the 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 advice. You know, first, the guy lasted. 400 years, he's gonna last 400 more. So hang in there, uh, ups and downs and periods of stasis and periods of movement, but, but hang in there. It's, Shakespeare's shown me the entire world and has enriched my life in countless, countless ways. So I recommend you hit your wagon to it. But the concrete advice I would give to, to people is what um, Hemings and Condell said in the first folio, which is read him therefore and again and again you know, read him therefore, and again, and again, just read it, carry it around. Abraham Lincoln had a copy of Shakespeare within reach wherever he was, you know, Kevin Klein, when he was a young actor, kept a copy of Hamlet in his back pocket, 24, seven, 365, <laughs> and sitting on the subway would just read a couple of pages, you know. Just read it, 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 and it will um, unfold and open up its mysteries. This beautiful canon of literature. Yeah. thank you. That's that's a lovely piece of advice. I think Garrett, you had one
0: question that you wanted to ask. There. I, I, you know, we were. <laughs> Yeah. You know, why not? Why not? I think that's a beautiful place to leave it, to be perfectly honest. And and this probably won't make it into the podcast, but as Jim and I were talking about questions, I said, let's, let's really, let's just hit them with this one. Who is your favorite student and why?
2: (laughs) Oh my God. You can't be serious. Like asking which of my two children I love more. (laughs) So go ahead. Oh my God. Who's my favorite student? That I, you know, I can only answer it by way of saying that the fact that I've been able to have a career as an educator alongside my career as an artist has enhanced it. My 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 career as an artist has benefited enormously from the students that I've had who have asked questions and forced me to explain myself and revealed aspects of the work to me in ways that I would never have been able to see myself. So, I, I don't know. Um, they, they, they seem to me like one beautiful, breathing, evolving body of people and not, not a series of individuals, but a collective of, of, of wondrous minds and hearts and souls.
0: Barry Edelstein, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today.
2: Hey, gentlemen, that was so much fun. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for having me. And congratulations on your great work. And, you know, I, I just admire what you're doing tremendously.
0: Thanks so much. Good luck. Be well, be safe. You too. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. And that's a wrap, Barry.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah. All right, boys. All right. Thank you, fellas. How great this. That was fantastic. Thank it was you.
0: A lot of, it was a lot of fun. We really look forward to hearing the, the Radio Hamlet.
2: Oh, yeah. I'll
0: that's be it. listening for that final fight scene. I know, to see how, see solve how I'm
2: <laughs> solve no, they it. they switched swords. <laughs> Look, they've changed rapiers. You should listen to the Orson Welles one because it's right. really interesting. He, he cut the hell out of it. And then what's so hilarious about it, it's the Mercury Theater and, and it's before Citizen Kane, but I think after Julius Caesar, I'm not sure. Anyway, he's got everybody talking 700 miles an hour. And then- you get to the soliloquies, which is him
0: playing mm-hmm. Hamlet
2: and it's slow. <laughs> oh, that is too, too solid flesh. With, with that voice of his, you know, yeah. that incredible voice. Oh, and then God. everybody else is going <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And then he's just like, you know, it's hilarious because uh-huh. it gives you a total glimpse of what that theater company was, yep. you know? It yep. was just the showcase for this genius. And he could do whatever he wanted. It's is, absolutely hysterical. Yeah. Well, <laughs> thanks I mean, for the tip. We're going to check it out. Yeah, yeah. you got to check it out. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Totally. It's pretty
2: bad, really. It's, <laughs> it's pretty bad. But, but he's amazing because he's got that, you know, this instinctive connection to Shakespeare. God knows where it came from. Right. You know, this kid who grew up dirt poor. He was born in Ireland, dirt poor. You know, somehow he had this instinctive connection to it. Um, you know, it's, and, a, it's and, the language again, right and that instrument, you know that yeah. voice, God, so yeah, if you Google Orson Wells Radio Hamlet, you'll be able to find it. totally, totally fellas, right. thanks very thank you thanks Excellent. a lot thank very much. Yeah, right. stay in touch, okay right. yeah cheers thank you. take
1: care. bye.